Hi, and welcome to Figure Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today, we welcome on poets Ralph Adamo and John Travis, who will be appearing in an event this week, Remembering Maxine Casson, a poetry reading, which will be held on Tuesday, April 24th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the Lounge View House and Gardens. The event is in connection with Lounge View's exhibition, Lador Vador, From Generation to Generation, Jewish Women and Their Impact on New Orleans. Take a listen. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Ralph Adamo. I'm here with uh, John Patrick Travis. Uh, we're among the poets and friends of the late poet Maxine Casson, who are going to read and share memories of Maxine tomorrow night, Tuesday, April 25th, uh, in uh, Longview Gardens, I think from 5 to 7. Um, and uh, we hope that a lot of people will come out and, and join us in that. Um, John and I wanted to... Uh, talk a little bit about Maxine, um, maybe read a few of her poems and talk about why we think they are as good as we think they are and why we think they will last the test of time, which I really do believe they will, and uh, let John maybe talk a little bit about it first. Yeah, Maxine was uh, born in 1927 and lived to 2010, lifelong resident of New Orleans, uh, married to Joe Casson, World War II vet. And uh, I met, uh, as a publisher of Portal Express, uh, I met Maxine in the 1990s. Uh, and uh, she was really, uh, for me personally, uh, an encouraging spirit um, to, because I was just starting my little publishing endeavor. And uh, she already had been publishing for years. And uh, she she encouraged me to Go ahead and publish uh, the posthumous volume of uh, Everett Maddox's uh, book, uh, American Waste. Right. She, uh, I, I should have mentioned that. She was, besides being a, a poet, she was a really uh, energetic and important uh, small press publisher, uh, New Orleans Poetry Journal Press, uh, published Everett Maddox's first book, uh, uh, the Everett Maddox Songbook in 1980. And over the years, from the 1950s till she had to sort of stop doing it in the early 2000s, I think she must have published 30, 35 books and some pretty serious poets. Right. Among them, Everett Maddox and uh, the Texas poet Vassar Miller, who was also a very good friend of hers. Um, yeah, she was, and, and you said something else that's important about her, which is that she was just uh, always encouraging of other poets and of the, you know, the publication, uh, the work of publication and, and right. uh, just an extremely generous person. Yeah, and uh, uh, I'm kind of affiliated with, uh, and I know Ralph is too, uh, the Maple Leaf readings on Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, 3 to 5.30 or so, and uh, that's produced uh, th- over the 39-year history of that, that reading on Sunday afternoons. Uh, it's, it's produced uh, some anthologies, and Maxine, along with uh, York Corbin, is that yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and Ralph, uh, maybe you were involved in that too. I don't know. The first Correct, Maple really. Leaf Rag. Yeah, it was in 1980. Yeah. And uh, uh, anyway, I when I arrived on the scene, uh, people were saying, "Hey, we ought to do another anthology." And Travis, uh, you're just starting <laughs> out. <laughs> you're a good candidate. So I I signed up for it, and I published uh, five more anthologies since then and uh maxine was uh right on board cheering me on all the way and i i really appreciate that about her and that is a great record of uh sort of the, the 
the development of poetry in New Orleans, those six volumes of the Maple Leaf Rag are, uh, I think, you know, again, a serious document for, for the historians, you know. But, right, um, yeah. I wanted to read a, a few poems and, uh, and sort of maybe also talk about the, the poetry di- directly. I, one of the things that always impressed, I met Maxine in the late 1970s and uh, worked with her. Uh, uh, Everett Maddox asked us to, uh, to help him sort of decide which poem should go in the Everett Maddox songbook. So I worked with her on that. And also, I should say, in, in the late 80s, she, uh, she published my third book, uh, Hanoi Rose, for which I was very grateful. And um, anyway, this is a in the I'm I'm now among the things I do now is I edit uh, Xavier Review at, at Xavier University. And one of the first things I did when I took over that magazine in 2011 was uh, an issue that that uh, sort of features both uh, Maxine Casson, who had just passed away, and uh, Robert Sabatier, who who had died a little bit earlier. Two poets. Uh, to New Orleans poets, and so the ones I'm going to read uh, today are from the selection that we published in Xavier Review, beginning with a poem uh, called In Memoriam, uh, and let me read it now, I'll say what I think is, each, each day that I write the poem which swells inside me is a day of diminished pain. Mornings filled with sounds of mockingbirds scolding each stray who slinks home in the hour before dawn. Even during downpours, messages are exchanged. I am thereby assured that my own scribbled lines will make no ghost wary, since whatever condemns or extols is another leaf whirled from the everlasting tree whose roots are entangled in my mother's unbound hair, my father's loosened tongue. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And, you know, it really touches on the creative process, too. I yeah. listened to an uh, interview she did at Tulane Newcomb, where she graduated from in a, <clears throat> with a degree in master's in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I was listening to this tape and about her creative process. And it's uh, it, 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 one thing she said uh, that poems for her were kind of like medicine for the human spirit. Yeah. And uh, the, well, that first line about uh, the pain and uh, the... Uh, relieving of that um and she just didn't feel right unless she was creating you know it, yeah. it was just important to her uh, absolutely and, and and besides that over overarching sort of ethos there's this poem has one of the things that always again impressed me about is is, is how how she has managed to make profound things out of the really simplest elements uh, typically you know uh, birds and cats and flowers and uh, the poems are not about those things, but those things bring her to the epiphany or the insight, and yeah. in this case, to the memorial of her of her parents. You know, in those last two lines, my mother's <laughs> unbound hair, my father's loosened tongue. Yeah, you know, you kind of don't see that coming in the poem until she until she brings it to you. Beautiful poem. There was there was another one that right after that called Canaries, and. Uh, this is dedicated to her friend Vassar Miller, um, and uh, who sometimes would visit uh, would visit her, and they would they would talk all night. And... I remember her talking about Vassar several times, uh, and uh, apparently Vassar was handicapped in some way. She had um, I don't know 
It was, it was one of those uh, awful diseases that sort of wastes your muscles and makes it difficult for you to be understood talking. But she was a, she was herself a very gifted poet. So I mean, her po- but but she and Maxine somehow had this bond that was remarkable. And and this poem kind of celebrates it. It's it's called Canaries, and it's it's also her poems are. She's always reminded me of uh, of uh, Emily Dickinson and. Uh, it's hard to exactly say why, but but I think maybe this poem suggests it a little bit. If they locked us up, we would chirp all day. Two dime store birds suspended in a cage, our cuddle bone and mirrors rarely used. If they carried us together to the mines, we'd warn each other of the air's abuse without succumbing, perhaps the slightest swoon. All space sways to a song. The sun made certain our feathers glisten with her brightest hues. Even in Earth's entrails where fires congeal, your pan of worship, my somewhat dove-like sound, make echoes until one who brings us crumbs lowers above our heads night's printed hood as twittering subsides beneath the ground. (laughs) There's that metaphorical uh, paradigm you're talking about, too, starting out with birds and ending up in some deep... Something uh, much more profound. Right. Yeah. Did you want to read one, or should I? I've got well, a bunch. Why don't you read one more? Because right. uh, you know, I, I just love the ones you well, yeah, selected. The here, other things, so. yeah. I, I I remember when I was putting this issue together, I must have spent a long time with her books, sort of picking poems that just wouldn't leave me alone, you know. And, right. Um, I noticed another thing. I noticed is through, and you've seen this too in her poetry, is is her sort of great affinity for the city that she was born in and lived in, and. And at the end of her life, uh, sort of exiled to, by Katrina to Baton Rouge, was desperate to get back to and never quite made it. Yeah. Anyway, this is uh, called Three, Lo- Three Love Poems by a Native, and they're love poems to the city, essentially. The first one is called, is the three short poems titled separately. One is called New Orleans. You have to lie almost on top of the mark to know it's really a crescent, even though all your life you have never understood how parallels become perpendicular and streets that run for miles without meeting suddenly encounter each other at their far reaches. And the second one is Bastille Day. What do we do when the fanfare ends, when the last of the musicians is bathing his feet in the fountain and the tuba lies abandoned on the grass, dull and mute? The band drifts across the square in pursuit of tones that rise above the cathedral and disappear. The French horn clamors for wine in a darkened corridor beside the presbyter. And then the third one's called Jazz Funeral. As they cut the body loose, he whose footsteps falter can no longer keep time to the staccato rain or the umbrella's tarantula. Our pulse is the drumbeat, the brass band, the sun. In this city that plans all its celebrations under the sky, taunting Jupiter. Yeah, she she loved to talk about New Orleans and uh, growing up here, and um, I remember her telling me, how, you know, she used to ride the trolley for I think it was a nickel. Yeah, and uh, yeah. boy, have those days back could be kind. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she and you know another thing about that poem, it, it has a few rhetorical questions in there, and uh, yeah. kind of reminds me of uh, one of the things I really admire about her is that she was a lifelong learner. Yes. And uh, she especially loved that latter Memorial Library on oh. St. Charles Avenue. Yeah. 
and she I think she volunteered over there even to stack books in the old days. You know, most most every time I ever went in there, I saw her and or her and Joe sitting at the tables or at the computers and uh, and working away. Yeah. Hey, can I read one too? Please. Okay, yeah. I, I, it, it's along that same line of lifelong learning and. Um, she also did some teaching in her later years, and uh, she, uh, well, this is sort of a, I think, classroom of uh, younger uh, poets-to-be or younger uh, folks. This is called Willingness to, to Stumble in Learning, and it's from the book called, titled, The Other Side of Sleep. Today we will all begin the perfect poem in this classroom without windows. We will scratch holes in paper with erasers and hand in our seat work when the bell rings. I will think very hard of how to say something to you and discover you are clearer, more direct in your inexperience. I will praise carefully the shyest girl in the class or the most disruptive boy. The boldest student always asks, Read us your poem, please. Tomorrow, I promise, I will do exactly that. But then the door, too, has suddenly disappeared into a solid wall of crayon drawings through which the children pass easily into a schoolyard of river, sand made concave under swings. Boys come back in yellow slickers smelling of spring rain. My poem, I tell them, is hanging in the cloakroom. <laughs> That's beautiful. Willingness to stumble in learning. <laughs> she was just surrounded by a sea of books, and that just amazed me and inspired me, you know, to, to you know, follow that uh, yeah. in, uh, in my own life. Uh, she was just constantly reading and reflecting. It's just interested in so many different fields of learning, too, uh, as many philosophy majors are, I think. It, it reminds me of the, the uh, I noticed when I was looking at her books a little while ago in her first book published by Alan Swallow in 1962 called A Touch of Recognition. It's dedicated to Joe and for Danny when he can read. <laughs> <laughs> That's her son, Dan Kesson. Who, who will, I think, be there. I'm sure will be there tomorrow night. Tuesday night, Tuesday yeah. Night. He plays the cello, yeah. Uh, one thing about Joe, they, you, you mentioned seeing them together at Ladder, and, and uh, you, you pretty much always saw them together. When you saw her, you saw him. Uh, he was a kind of quiet, uh, strong presence by her side, and uh, just a remarkable man in his own right, too. And, uh, you know, you remember this, of course. The, they died within a few days of each other right. in Baton Rouge in yeah. 2010. And, and, Did that, that West Nile... Got him eventually. No, well, he, no, I don't. What? No, he he survived West Nile in two thousand two, I think it was. So okay. it was years years earlier. Okay. And the other thing he survived, you may remember this too, is is the uh, Bataan Death March, which uh, World War Two killed uh, a great many of the American soldiers who were who were in it. Um, so, um, can I read another one? Sure. So, uh, this it's, it's interesting. She she had a a Jewish heritage, of course, in Tomorrow night's uh, event is sponsored by the, is it, I'm saying this right, the League of, the New Orleans League of Jewish Women, I think. I think so. From... And, uh, but she does have one poem here in, in my selection called Heritage, where she references that. You know, there is no word in English for what you do, 
But in Jewish, there is a word. You do what women have done in generations past. When a man lies down and there is work to do, and he stays put and will not be roused, and you are left to do what no one else will do, under your breath is not the way to shelt. Writing this poem is not the way to shelt. You must shelt in a voice that stops one's ears, a voice borrowed from wives who toiled and failed. You must use all the words four walls have held like hidden graffiti you've memorized. Behind you, the souls of women who knew just one step beyond is the curse from God. (laughs) (laughs) She had a good wit about her, didn't she? Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. And the sound of her words, the shelt in there. Oh, you know yeah, what? I, she, I should have looked up what shelt means. She was a bit, means, of, a, but, uh, bit of a musician uh, in, her, in her poetry, I think. You know? yeah. <clears throat> she had a... Um, I, um, I, if you want, go ahead and read another one. Well, um, okay. Well, I was just going to uh, read one of my favorite ones. Uh, it's actually to her grandson. Ah. Uh, and it's also in The Other Side of Sleep, uh, which is... Uh, has some great photographs of uh, by Clarence John Laughlin, who was a friend of hers, and um, this is called Dandelion. I'm sure everybody knows what a dandelion has a little um, flower seeds on the weeds on the end there. You make a wish. Dandelion. Each year it takes longer to be sure that the mane of this flower weed is carried upward on the wind's current toward the place where wishes may be granted. A child, aged two, is not quite sure what to make of this strange ritual that interrupts our walk. He takes the bare stalk in his small hand and asks for another on which to blow, as I have done. The crown of this thistle dissolved by my wish, which was more for him, not so much my own, that he may stand on this earth full-grown, And remember how the sun made his shadow lengthen into manhood, a time in which he too shall resurrect odd customs with his own spirit's breath among wildflowers that separate the stones. Again, using using just really simple things of nature to uh, to illuminate the important things about. Being on Earth, I guess, about being alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- there, I have several more I wanted to read. Let me see if um, there's one. Uh, we've all had. I think we've all had. A lot of us have had cats who have gone missing. Ah, uh, yeah. The hazard of people who have cats. Anyway, she this, often fed the cats in her neighborhood oh, around right. General Pershing Street. Then. Yeah. And this one is actually, she's referencing a cat of hers called General Welfare. Uh, Anyway, it's called Missing. General Welfare, as she named her cat, saw his opening and disappeared. She whistles for him every night at 11 when each faint shadow grows a tail. But General Welfare is gone where the orange moon turns white. That mournful whistle of hers says, hope is our tragic lot. Eternal flames light up the hillside where earth's bare patches flare until new turf covers them up. Indoors, I wind my watch to her whistling in the dark. Before sleep, I am made aware of someone else's loss. All ritualists search for an unaltered pet. 
Now, at the stroke of twelve, some nameless longing climbs the kitchen stair. Yeah, again, she ends with that, <laughs> like you said, she's got that compression that Emily Dickinson had, you know, yeah. a short poem says so much. She was really a student of form too. She uh, yeah. she uh, picked over every single word. Uh, it was kind of tough working with her uh, <laughs> as far as the publication because uh, she was very discerning and a bit of a perfectionist when it came to uh, you know the way the poems were on the page and the way the Clarence John Laughlin's photos were sized and presented and everything, uh, but. Uh, I'm so glad I got to work with her. But it's also like uh, what Yeats tells us, you know, it, uh, everything that a poet does takes tremendous concentration and work, but if you let that work show, you failed. It has to look like it didn't effortless. cost you anything. Effortless. <laughs> cool, I think, and she, she does that I think, over and over again. Yeah. Um, I, let, me, let me, speaking of Yeats, she has... Wow. She has a poem uh, responding to Yeats. William, it's it's called "In Response to William Butler Yeats," uh, to his uh, well-known poem "Why Should Not Old Men Be Mad?" Or line. So anyway, that's the title. Why should not? Oh, her response to "Why Should Not Old Men Be Mad," which is something Yeats said. What should old women do if all old men be mad? Must they then follow suit, since no better can be had? Or do they know a charred pot must be scoured and good cheese separated from the milk that soured for those crazed lovers still ravenous for melon breasts who shuffle in to dine like the mad hatter's guests? An old woman keeps her wits with shopping lists, lets tables groan when sons return for visits, then serves up watery gruel when they depart, having escaped those ancient murmuring hearts. Between madness and sanity, the line is drawn by a palsied hand encountered, encountering false dawn. Her white mane loosely spread on wrinkled sheets, she rides bareback through all her girlhood's streets. And when she wakes in custom's tried embrace, she holds him fast, yet fears his dreaming face. Pretty imaginative there, isn't yeah. I? I mean, yeah. what a launch there. <laughs> You you had uh, you had another one you wanted to read. I'm well, going to hog this too much. Why don't you yeah read one last one maybe? Uh, well, or, yeah, uh, let's yeah. I can fit one more in if possibly. She go, go so ahead. short. Uh, one thing uh, you know I, that I was amazed it was like she was constantly reading and and growing till the day she died. Yeah, yeah learning. And, well, uh, you know that's the, she uh, and she didn't just read poetry. She read everything. Like she, I would, science, I would get uh, yeah. science and and politics, and she would she would refer me to things that she had read or seen on PBS or something like that. Right. And uh, one of the things I remember um, sort of being conscious of about her is just how politically conscious and astute she was, and how cons how how concerned a citizen she was. Right, uh, the poet as citizen, you know, uh, yeah, was an interesting. I mean, not, not withdrawing from the world, as as sort of essentially reticent as she was and kind of shy. She was really uh, a fighter, I think. Anyway, go ahead. Well, okay, and this this uh, picks up on what you're saying about uh, she believed that you know the creative process was involved in the interplay between the conscious mind, and the unconscious, and 
Uh, she, uh, like I said, uh, she believed the poet and the, the scientists uh, that created process is the same, really. Uh, and so this is one that she, she, you know, launched uh, her poem. She launched from the field of astronomy, hmm. and it's called Halley's Comet, which I think reappears every hundred years or something, something like that. 200. Yeah. And it's for her son Dan. Yeah. Halley's Comet. Here I stand face to face with my own mortality and the waning interests of friends who have no inclination to peer into the skies at an ungodly hour, scanning the horizon without the faintest notion of where Scorpio can be found. Lacking binoculars and with a naked eye, I look about in the dark for the clock with a luminous dial. Vaporous clouds are sliding past my window. Without notice, ice cubes rearrange themselves in my glass. I am certain now that those with whom I speak must be immortal. To the child who was born in April after Easter, I bequeath one gift, that he find his universe both predictable on occasion and worthy of observation, even at inconvenient times when Haley returns. I ask to be remembered as one of those who pay attention when it is getting late as someone willing to be awakened from deep sleep to wait in this darkness as long as I can wait. That's really beautiful, John. Yeah. Really beautiful. From the kitty cats to the, the heavens. Let me, let me, I'm going to no, one, between. one short one before we, before we run out of time. Great. She, um, of course, she published uh, two books with you, with your press, two wonderful books, and at least two other ones, and I'm not sure what her total production of books was, but... She produced a lot of poems anyway, and toward the end of her life in 09 and 10, I think she was not able to write very much, uh, but her son, Dan, gave me a couple of poems to put in this issue. Oh, that's uh, great. That she had written near the end of her life, and uh, one is actually called During Illness, and uh, it sort of has everything of, about her poetry in it. It's very short. Uh, it's dated August 23, 2009, so shortly before she died. These cut flowers and I observe each other, separated from the roots that nourished us. Cloudiness in the vase means the water needs changing, the flowers soon to be replaced with other offerings. I wish I could say to my well-wishers how much I would prefer a living plant, one I might care for and someday carry with me from this sick room into a place where we both may thrive in familiar surroundings. Of course, she, in the last several years of their lives, Joe and Maxine lived in Baton Rouge and wanted to get back to New Orleans but couldn't because of their their ill health and the damage to their house. And uh, I think that's what that poem is about. But, yeah. So, uh, One consolation, her son Dan lives in Baton Rouge. and yeah, He's oh, going to sure. be at the uh, reading tomorrow on Tuesday night, this, this Tuesday night, uh, the 24th. At Longview Gardens, right? Well, sure, they got to see Dan and their grandchildren more regularly than they would have. So, but yeah. they really did long to return. Yeah, I think. All right, John, it's been great talking to you about Maxine, and I uh, will be reading tomorrow. Great, I'll see you there. Yeah, that was Ralph Adamo and John Travis, two local poets who will be appearing in remembering Maxine Casson, a poetry reading will be held on Tuesday, April 24th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the Lounge View House and Gardens. 
Reminder, this event is in connection with Lounge View's exhibition, La Door of a Door, From Generation to Generation, Jewish Women and Their Impact on New Orleans. And both the exhibit, which opens at 5 p.m., and poetry reading are open to the public. For more information, you can go to www.loungeview.com or call 504-488-5488. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.